He does not resist you. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Let's pray. O Lord God, we pray that you would grant us wisdom and understanding in your word. Holy Spirit of God, come afresh. Come and increase your grace. Grant us wisdom. Grant us eyes that see and ears that hear your word as truth. And help us to believe what we hear. More than that, help us to search the scriptures and to know and to verify, to examine, to strengthen. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't, recommend, I, I don't recommend movies from the pulpit. I'm not recommending this movie per se, but I have seen a movie, and I was searching, I was asking Matthew, my son, last night, I said, I need an illustration from a movie, and so we were thinking about it together, and we remembered this, and it was World War Z. Well, I have to give him credit. He thought of this, but it's true. I went back and I watched this, but there's a movie scene in World War Z Brad Pitt's looking for asthma medicine. He's got a gun slung over his shoulder. and he's, He needs, the world is coming to an end, folks. The world is coming to an end. People are becoming very, very sick. People are dying incessantly. Everyone is being infected uh, at, at an incredible rate of speed. And Brad Pitt is concerned to find asthma medicine for his daughter. And so as he goes into a grocery store, there are people there and they're all grabbing, grabbing food and every manner of thing that they possibly can get because the world is coming to an end. However, as he gets into the drugstore section of that grocery store, he's confronted by a man with a gun who seems to have, for whatever reason, have a desire and a hunger for drugs. The world has come to an end, and there is a hunger for self-indulgent drugs. It's an extraordinary scene. He's simply trying to take care of his child. However, the individuals who are after the drugs are after... That, that high, that, that intention to ascend from their worldly troubles and uh, glean something of, of a state of nirvana. And it, 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 it illustrates at least the idea that, and we've seen this in other movies and perhaps read about it in other books, or perhaps we've even seen this when uh, in the last few years there have been those extraordinary moments of uh, flash crowds of large numbers of people who have gone into department stores, grocery stores, drug stores, and cleaned the place out. You would wonder what motivates people to do that. And there's a spirit behind such things, such absurd phenomena, that we will hear something about this morning in James chapter 5. And it's there's a sad trait, I think, in humanity that even though the world is ending or human beings are nearing the end of our lives, human beings are still so wired that riches have a greater pull on us, sometimes at least, than life itself. Well, this is a very pastoral letter. And in this passage, I'm not going to mince words about it, but James is using very blunt words about riches and he's writing to the church. We know that he's writing to exiled persons, Christians who are dispersed throughout the world. We've said that already. So why would he write this section of scripture to Christian people, most of whom are not wealthy, most of whom are not storing up treasure on earth, but rather storing up treasure in heaven? To whom is James writing in this particular passage, in these six verses? 
There are moments in Scripture when God sounds judgment against the world and against worldly persons, those who have no interest whatsoever in him. And his intention often is to inform the people of God and to encourage them as they receive and hear of God's intended judgment against injustice in the world. Think about it. If you're part of an oppressed group, does it not encourage your soul to hear God explicitly say those who are guilty of injustice that he himself is against them? Does it not encourage our soul to hear that God will one day make right the injustices that we observe today? And so I think that's what James is doing here. He is writing, at at no point in these six verses do we hear him refer to them as brethren. Brethren, I tell you that. He doesn't do that here. He does it in many other places. But he does not do that in these these six verses. He does, in fact, use a voice that says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Now, John Calvin has an interesting note on this passage, on this particular passage. And he says, repentance includes, and I'm paraphrasing, repentance includes weeping. But howling is something that that goes far beyond weeping and genuine repentance and sorrow. Rather, howling, and that word I think more accurately reflects the Greek, howling. Howling more is attributed to judgment and an impending judgment that the soul is well aware of. I believe James is writing to to the rich in general of society who are oppressing the people of God. He's writing to a diverse nation of people. Uh, He's writing to Christians spread throughout the world, and he's saying, look, in the midst of my pastoral letter, this is a word to the rich of the world who are oppressing you. Thus, you should be encouraged in that God sees your suffering at their hands. So that's what's happening here in this small passage. James has been reviewing for a time. He's writing to Christian people about how they ought to live Christianly, if we can make that word up, in the world. He's concerned that Christians live in a Christian manner, that we live in a way that reflects the character of God, living in in such a way that reflects in some way uh, our, our new nature in Christ, uh, our, re, our redeemed, uh, our new life, the new birth, our, our having been born again to a new and living hope as it is born out in our conduct. So these are suffering people, people enduring trials, suffering of various kinds. They've been persecuted. They are in the midst of grave trials. They are tempted in their sins and by things within themselves that call for a temptation to sin and a desire for it. There are some who feel that their sins have disqualified them from receiving any wisdom from God. And James has written to them and said, look, you can ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and he will grant to you his promised wisdom. There are some Christians who have unbridled tongues, untamed tongues, they're guilty of showing partiality. They don't understand the importance of works, clarifying and demonstrating saving faith and new life in Christ. And James seeks to instruct them and help them. He's he's drawn very clear biblical lines between worldly behavior and godly behavior and the works that flow from each one. 
worldly behavior and its wisdom is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. Anyone who desires to be friends with the world is an enemy of God. James has said these things. They're provocative, bold things meant for Christian people who need to be shocked about an incipient worldliness that can seep into our lives. And in truth, all of us in some way are engaged in the world more than we ought to be. And yet Christ is a great Savior who can weed it all out, who can cleanse us of all iniquity and uncleanliness. And so James is speaking about the means of grace, and he's speaking about how as Christians we can uh, flee from worldliness and our worldly tendencies. Here in these six verses... As I've said earlier, and briefly, he's writing to Christian people with the intent that he should, that, that God, speaking through him, would declare his judgment against the rich and the oppressors of the world. And in that, he is indirectly showing Christian people how we ought to live and how we ought to deal with our wealth and riches. There are behaviors here that he outlines against the wicked and against against the ungodly and those who are rich and wealthy and and who misuse and abuse their wealth in ungodly and wicked ways. We're not saying, James is not saying that wealth in and of itself is a sin. He's not saying that. And so I, I think as Christians, we can find a great deal here that would be an encouragement to us because we, frankly, if, if you look at, if you examine the world and if you're any kind of a student of the world and of history, you, you, you need to recognize, if you haven't already, but you must come to the inevitable conclusion that if you live here in the U.S., regardless of your financial state, you are amongst some of, you're, you personally, are numbered amongst some of the most wealthy people in the world. We do realize that, do we not? There are people throughout the world who live on less than a dollar a day, two dollars a day, three dollars a day, ten dollars a day. Those are in the worst possible scenarios. But, but even in the modern world, even in other places, there are many who live on far less than what we have. If you live in the West, you are wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. You have a car. Maybe you have two cars. It's extraordinary wealth. Maybe you realize that. Maybe you don't. To walk into a grocery store every day, buy what we need for the day, and walk out, it's extraordinary wealth. To be able to eat and then eat until a point of satisfaction, but even then to go overboard and eat more and then to snack in between meals, that is wealth that much of the world does not know. To be able to enter into our home and have warmth that's not generated by a pot-bellied stove into which we must feed wood constantly throughout the day, that's a that's a that, that's that's an indication of great wealth. To have multiple pieces of clothing. Think about this. In the fifties, if maybe you live in a house that was that was built in the early thirties or twenties, forties, fifties, somewhere in there, and if you have a house like that, you'll have the same complaint that we do. We have no closet space. Our closets are about as big as the square of this of this pulpit, and that's it. Into that, you must put my clothing and my wife's clothing. It's extraordinarily difficult. 
We're always fighting over space in that closet. It is jam-packed. And I don't think that we have a tremendous excess of clothing. We don't. In fact, my wife often tells me that, so I believe that. The truth is that we are wealthy here in the West. And nowadays, in this day and age, uh, we've come far from the 50s. Now we have so many clothes, we have to have build, build larger closets, even if we don't really have an excessive and extraordinarily amount, uh, extraordinary amount of clothing. We are wealthy. We are wealthy. Here in the West, we are wealthy. You may not feel it. You may not think that you are this morning, but we are wealthy in comparison to the world in comparison to other peoples from other times, we are exceedingly wealthy. So how ought we to live? And what does God specifically say against the rich of the world who, who have ignored him, who are not believers? Well, he says three, three things. The first of which is that there is an aggressive corrosion coming. He'll say, secondly, he'll point out their astonishing conduct. And thirdly, he'll speak of an audacious complaint against them. But each of these things, uh, they begin with A and C. It just seemed to naturally come that way. So aggressive corruption. He points to the things that they have. He points to their accumulated wealth, and he says there is a corruption coming upon them. Now, precious metals don't really rust or wear down. They don't corrode thoroughly. Uh, if you boil the, it, not boil them, if you heat them to the point of, of melting, they will melt. Uh, the dross will be pulled off, but, but they will melt into a purer form. But then they will harden very quickly. But if you have gold or silver, you know that after a time it will tarnish. But it doesn't really corrode. What, what, what James is using here is language that dis depicts not physically what's happening with their riches, but spiritually what's happening with their riches. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. The super-rich are in view and those who are wealthy and who do not acknowledge God, but also who have resources, however large or small, People who have a great deal, and they've hoarded. They've hoarded up their wealth, and they have done so not as good stewards of God under the fear of the Lord, wanting to carefully guard their funds and to prepare to use it for God's glory throughout the, the, the entirety of their lives. They're not wisely considering their end, that one day there will come a retirement time, and they need to have an appropriate number of funds in order to support themselves and for their own hospitalization, perhaps as they get older. That's not what they're doing here. They're hoarding funds. And James tells us in verse 5 why they're doing it, for luxury and self-indulgence. For luxury and self-indulgence. Now, many of us would say this morning, I'm not doing that. I go, I live paycheck to paycheck. I, I, I don't have a wealth of luxurious items. I don't, I don't have an extraordinary self-indulgence to the extent that I spend an inordinate amount of money on myself. Well, that may be the case, but principally, there are some things for us to learn here. James is, at least in substance, rejecting the idea of hoarding a vast amount of wealth and resources for luxury and self-indulgence. 
Or more than that, a rejection of, of accumulating wealth without any thought of God and his purposes for it. Now, it's there that there's a touchstone for us as Christians. Accumulating wealth without any thought of God or his purposes and granting it to us. That's where it touches us. Garments are moth-eaten, gold and silver showing marks of disuse and disintegration. Spiritually, these things have contributed to their spiritual malaise, and frankly, a judgment is coming upon them that will show that the things they have accumulated are, as it were, an accumulation of arguments against them as to whether or not they could enter into heaven and whether or not they have honored the Lord. It's amongst the super-rich that there's an infection of worldliness and a lack of self-denial. They have not denied themselves anything. They have accumulated, and they are filled with, and they are delighted themselves in, in an infection of worldliness from which they cannot extricate themselves. Notice in this section that it doesn't in any way tell them, come and repent. It doesn't do that. It says, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Perhaps there is a point when the wealthy are so overly wealthy, so so distrustful of God, so consumed with their desire for things, they have no desire to turn and repent. There is no entrance for them left in the way because they have gone so far down that road of self-indulgence. There is always grace for those who repent, but James does not foresee their repentance. They love their resources, and they have no interest in God. The second thing that James tells us of is an astonishing conduct. It's an astonishing conduct. We hear about this. At the very end of verse 3 in my translation, perhaps it's a, in a different verse altogether for you, but it says this, in, it is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Think about that. In that opening movie scene from that movie that I referenced earlier, the world is in the last days. And one is struck by this idea that people would go and consume all of the worldly goods that they could possibly find in a grocery store I don't know about you, but there's not an awful lot that will interest me in a grocery store. Maybe a little bit of food, but not much else. I'm not really interested in accumulating well in wealth there. But James has in view the idea that the super wealthy and the rich, the, the, the families of our world who are social influencers and those who, who have accumulated an extraordinary and embarrassing amount of riches, they... They have stored up wealth and riches for themselves in the day in which they find themselves facing judgment. They're in the last days. What did Jesus tell the disciples? What did he tell them except that they're in days of tribulation? He alluded to the fact that they are in the last days. There's nothing more to expect other than the revealing of the man of lawlessness, of wickedness in our world, and the return of Jesus Christ. There's not a lot of other events that we have seen portended in Scripture. 
We are awaiting the return of Jesus. If you're storing up wealth today, you're storing up wealth in the last days. And how much sense does that make? It's an astonishing conduct or behavior. This pattern of misuse of wealth and resources, it shows an astonishing disregard of spiritual realities, especially that of judgment and of being required to give an account to the living God as to how one has made use of what God has given. Here is an individual, at least here are individuals in James's mind, who are living without regard for God's timing, for God's lordship, his personal stewardship, without any regard for the obligation of tithes and offerings. There's a Christian man on Facebook, and I referenced him a couple of weeks ago, and he got up there and he put up something this morning on the Lord's Day. I don't know how this honors the Lord on the Lord's Day. I don't know how this stewards the day of Sabaoth. I, I don't understand the significance of why he would say this on the Lord's Day, but he said if your pastor teaches that, uh, that the tithe is still an obligation and that the tithe should be in the form of money, then... That pastor is not a biblical pastor. I guess you're going to have to number me amongst them all. The truth is that in Scripture, and he's making the argument that because the people of God in Old Testament Israel didn't give physical money like you and I do in physical dollars or checks, and somehow that's not an obligation for people today. Yet he fails to remember, and he's being disingenuous. He's always talking about the Bible, book, chapter, and verse. He's being disingenuous. Jesus, when confronting the Pharisees about their tithing, said, this you should do. But he says, you neglect the weightier matters. The weightier matters of the law regarding the heart and of obligations of service, love of neighbor. You neglect the weightier matters of the law. Paul instructs the church to set aside resources. He's not talking about grain and barley. He's talking about laying aside actual money, resources used to pay for the needs of the church to support local ministry. He says it over and over again to the Corinthian church, both the first and second letter. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, all the way to the end of Malachi, God says, bring in the tithe into the storehouse, and I'll bless you, and if you don't, you'll find everything will corrupt and undermine what wealth you do have. God actually says, when you do not tithe, you're robbing me, he says. You're robbing me. Well, there are lots of foolish things that Christians sometimes say. I I number myself amongst that same number. Sometimes we say things incorrectly. Sometimes we say things foolishly. I'm not sure what his agenda really is, but... But wealth and resources are given to us for a purpose. God gives us every penny that we receive. And his intention and his purpose behind it is something that we are to query him of and to ask him, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? How do you want me best to serve you? What have you given me these resources for? How best can I honor and glorify you with what I have, with what I own? Well, these rich Individuals, these ungodly rich persons, against whom this passage of Scripture 
rails. They have no regard to, to God. They are not thinking about the judgment of God. They are not thinking about the fact that one day they will give an account to God for everything that they have and what they have done with it. They have no regard for God's timing, for his lordship, for personal stewardship, for tithes and offerings. No regard whatsoever for God's intention in giving what he's given. They think that God has given what what he has given for the sake of raising their own personal level of living. Their their personal level of being able to live and purchase what they purchase and indulge what they want to indulge. No regard whatsoever for God's intention in his giving, the purpose for which he is given. God never gives without purpose. God never enriches without purpose. God never gives to us something and imbues us with gifts and abilities without also expecting that in our use of those things, we will glorify him and serve him. The question we should ask is, why did God give me what he has given me? What has he purposed it for? What is God's intention in my use of this? Shouldn't Christians live simply? Shouldn't we live wisely? It doesn't mean that we can't obtain something that that is nice. I, I knew a pastor years ago who was up in Savoy and the first time I met him, he had a beautiful BMW sitting out of inside of his very simple home. And we went in, the first thing he said to me, because he was very defensive about it, or he wasn't very defensive, but he felt a little defensive about it because people make judgments. That car you saw in the driveway was a gift from someone. I did not purchase it. That was a helpful clarification. It's a very expensive BMW. Someone gave it to him. I think that's a wonderful gift. I'm not suggesting it. I think I don't really want a BMW, so I'm not asking for that. But it was an extraordinary gift that someone gave to him when he had a need. And so someone was excessive and and was kind. And they didn't just give him a junker, but they gave him something very nice that would help him for years to come. That is a thoughtful gift. But he was making a point to me because... Clearly, his life was a demonstration that he had been careful. He had, he had been a careful steward. He was not living excessively, and he wanted me to know that, and I appreciated his, his statement to that effect. But Jesus gives us an illustration in, in the wise virgins, and he says that we are to live in such a way that we are prepared for the Lord's return. Shouldn't that govern our use of our wealth? Shouldn't that inform us in the ways in which we use the resources God has given to us? If I'm going to stand before the living God shortly, if I'm only going to live on this earth some 80 or 90, 100 years, maybe, but then depart and be with the Lord, shouldn't I live in such a way that I'm carefully examining my use and my attitude towards what God has given to me? my resources, examining continually all the time whether or not I'm placing a greater trust in those things than I am in him himself, the giver of all things. Am I prepared for the Lord's return? Am I prepared to depart from this world? Am I living like Jesus lived? Jesus did not live an excessive lifestyle. Jesus gave. Jesus was generous. Jesus was kind. Jesus did not accumulate. 
Jesus didn't own a home. Does that mean we can't own a home? No, that doesn't. It certainly isn't what, what that means. But we should be informed by Jesus' life, should we not? We should see how he lived. We should listen to his words. And we should ask, why did God give me this? Why did God give me the wealth that he gave me? What, what Lord, prayerfully, Lord, what do you want me to do with it? I think sometimes our use of our wealth is a demonstration of a refusal to trust in God. Didn't he pray? Didn't he teach us to pray, saying, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Like you, pardon me. Uh, give us this day our daily bread." Isn't that a request, a plaintive request of God that we should ask on a daily basis? And isn't that the perspective of God's people who are often thrust aside in this world? And who are often numbered amongst the least wealthy. If we are preparing for the Lord's return, should we not be preparing and making use of our wealth in such a way that we are not abusing it? We are not. We have not given ourselves over to excessive self-indulgence. Thirdly and finally, there is an audacious complaint an audacious complaint. You see, they're guilty of doing three things, at least, and these are a summary of things that wealthy people have done. I was struck in the last <clears throat> in the last election cycle, uh, there was a description of one particular presidential candidate who had been guilty at numerous times throughout his life of giving contracts to individuals or companies and then not paying those contracts at a later point when those contracts were finished. The work was done. That should be something that should disqualify right at the very beginning. The truth of the matter is that the super rich are in view here, and they're often guilty of fraud, keeping back wages. Have you ever experienced this? Now, I didn't experience it at the hand of a super rich person, but oftentimes I found in my former business life, that amongst non-Christians, they would be generous, they would open the door for me, they would make sure that the money that I needed when I finished the job was right there when I got done. But I found oftentimes that Christians in general would withhold funds expecting far more of me than I was contracted for, and they were often neglectful in making sure that I had the money that I had earned quickly after I was finished. It should not be that, that way. It should not be that way amongst Christians. One time it happened to me when I was out on the circuit. I was in seminary and I was on the circuit preaching as often as I could. I'm still learning how to preach, still struggling through discerning preaching and what God intends in preaching and how best to present the word of God and to explain and open that from the pulpit. But Back then, I was very, very young. I needed every opportunity I could get. And uh, so one time I was asked as a special favor. Uh, Marguerite came, came out of the office at the seminary and said, Stephen, Stephen, would you be willing to go to New Orleans? Now, New Orleans was a three-hour trip away. <clears throat> I had only a truck, and I had three kids, uh, three babies, and my wife. I said, yes, we'll go. And it was a, it was a church within our own denomination, I went out there, <clears throat> people were very kind, I preached. After I preached, within 
10 minutes, the place was emptied. And I thought I had been promised before I had left. I said, well, if I go, I'll have to go the night before because I'm not getting up at 4 a.m. and driving out that early. I'll go the night before and I'll stay at a motel. If they'll reimburse me, I'll go. I was told, yes, they will reimburse you. Okay. Ten minutes after the service, everyone's gone. There's no one left to reimburse me. We hung around. We waited around. We went in every nook and cranny in the church. We just made noise. We did everything that we could in the hopes that someone was still there. And apparently there was a group somewhere hidden, but I could not find them. There was no one around. So I went home. And I was. we were poor seminarians. We didn't have much money at all. In fact, it was a bad time. Uh, there were moments. There were swings. And we were at a point where we were in between. And... Um, it was very hard for me to lay out $100 for a motel on a weekend when the NCAA was holding a basketball tournament in New Orleans. We could not find a, a, a place to stay. No one informed me of that or opened their home to me or anything. Uh, so we wound up staying in a very, very seedy hotel uh, that was kept me awake at night watching the door. I'll just say that. It was four weeks. I, I wanted to be respectful of that church. I didn't want to. I, I assumed that they would send a check at just the right time. Well, they didn't. No one did. So finally, I had to call the pastor and say, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, I have no expectation of, of any kind of a, an honorarium. I have no expectation of anything other than simply reimbursing me for my gas uh, and the motel from the night before. That's it. I'd greatly appreciate that reimbursement. Uh, he sent back uh, a check relatively quickly. Uh, it was for the gas. Uh, it lacked an honorarium. It was nothing else. There was no generosity on their part at all. But I did get a little bit of the gas money and the motel money back. That shouldn't have happened that way. I'm sure it was just poor execution poor communication, but it shouldn't happen that way amongst Christians. Christians should have a concern for those who are in need. There should be an ethic that drives our interaction with one another. And the super rich, the, the, those whom, against whom uh, James is writing this morning, says they typically will keep back wages. Can you imagine a, a full day of laboring in a field, being promised a certain amount of money at the end of the day? You've worked by the sweat of your own brow. You are raw. Your hands are broken, worn, and bloodied. And the man who said he would pay you X for that day says, well, he's gone. He went home to supper. And meanwhile, you have no food, no money for food for supper for your family. Now, shouldn't he have gotten you what you have earned before you have left that field? If he wants you on that field working for him, he should be on that field ready to pay you when you're done. There's an ethic for Christians that should be evident in how we treat those who are in need. And he says that the rich defraud those who are laborers. So the question confronts us this morning, have I paid my bills? Have I fulfilled my financial obligations? Has my yes been yes and my no been no? When I have promised someone a certain amount and I have promised them that they can work for me, am I following through on that and making certain my obligations as a homeowner are being fulfilled towards the person that I've asked to work for me and do this particular project 
The Lord has heard. The Lord has heard. The Lord knows when we have said, yes, please do the work. The Lord knows when we have said, yes, I'll pay you this amount. The Lord knows when we have said, look, if, if there are overages, I'm obligated for them. The Lord knows. And if we have ever worked for someone and they have dealt with us unjustly, the Lord has seen. Pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. The wealthy of our world need to hear this. The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. There's a second thing that marks the, 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 uh, the sinfulness of the, the extremely wealthy. The audacious complaints against them uh, include fraud, but also self-indulgence. Living in luxury and indulging one's appetites excessively, that's what they're doing. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. If you know anything about farm life, animals will eat just about anything you bring them. If you bring them hay, if you bring them grain, if you bring them sweet feed, they'll eat it. They'll have their favorites. They will get fatter and fatter and fatter, not knowing your intention for them is that you would make use of uh, the beef, uh, the chicken, uh, the turkey, whatever it may be that you will one day slaughter and make and put as food on your table. But they'll eat everything. And, and, and James likens them to that. And James likens the rich to them. He's essentially saying you're fattening, fattening yourself up for the day of slaughter and of judgment. You're living a, lo- a soft life of wealth without work and service to the glory of God. More than this, though, living a life where sin is not resisted whenever there is a promise of enjoyment or comfort. They are indulging themselves at every turn. I know that we know what the super wealthy look like, but do we also know what, what, it, what it's like when people who ought to be working who have an obligation before their creator, God who has called them to work, refuse to work, and still indulge themselves based upon ill-gotten gain or the whims of society that should not be supporting their refusal to work. There's a third way in which they or guilty of, against which James makes an audacious complaint. Thirdly, false and murderous accusations. There are false accusations against people who are righteous for the sake of self-enrichment. There's a lack of Christian ethics in how they treat their employees. They, they've treated their employees badly. They've been treated their employees in such a way who have done good things, who have been fair, who have been honest, who have been clear. And all that they've done They have mistreated them and treated them badly and mislabeled them. Perhaps they've treated their employees or service people, people who do work on their homes or vehicles or watch their children unjustly. Maybe they've acted like these people aren't even there. Well, that's the gist of what James has told us. Now let me make a word of application in our close here. Gene Peterson has a a paraphrase of this same passage. It's quite telling. I think it's helpful to read it. A final word to you, arrogant rich. Take some lessons in lament. 
You'll need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your stomach, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling up wealth. What you piled up is just judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show is a fatter-than-usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. It's a very good paraphrase, I think. Not, not, not the Bible, but it's a paraphrase of the Bible. Well, insomuch as we have lived an excessively luxurious life, perhaps we've indulged ourselves when we shouldn't have. Perhaps we've lost sight of the art of self-denial for the sake of the kingdom and of God, forgetting that Jesus said, store up treasure in heaven. Store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. Perhaps we've forgotten that and we've indulged ourselves and bought things we shouldn't have bought. Now we wear it. Now we have it in our home. And really we look at it and we think, oh, how much money we have spent and we lament what we have done. Well, Turn to the Lord and ask his forgiveness. Establish a new pattern, a new ethic in the way that you use the wealth that God has given to you. If you've withheld what others have deserved or made a false promise of payment, or you've self-indulged your financial and excessive fantasies, let us repent and seek the Lord's forgiveness. Let us live in such a way that we please the Lord with what we have. Let us ask of all the things that we have down to the last dollar, Lord, what is your purpose in this? What do you wish for me to do? How can I glorify you in all that I have? God didn't make you for the purpose of storing up wealth for yourself. God has not enriched you for the sake of raising your standard of living. Contrary to modern preachers today, no, God does not want you healthy, wealthy, and wise. God does want you wise. God God will make you healthy if he is gracious and merciful to do it, and you ask him for it, and he is willing. But wealth God has never promised. God has never promised that you would be wealthy beyond your dreams, and that you could simply name a figure, and it will come to you. It's nonsense. When you hear such messages, you need to leave such a church. But God has promised that he will give you sufficient for the day's needs. That's what he has promised. In the midst of the Lord's prayer, Lord, give us today our daily bread. He has promised that we will not be begging for bread, that we will survive, that he will provide. But dear friends, have we, have we permitted... Are we storing up wealth and laying up treasure in contradiction to the reality of faith in the judgment day of Almighty God? Or are we laying up treasure where moth and rust do corrupt? Where, there's, where, where is our heart? Where is our money? Where our heart is, there our money is, the scriptures say. For where your heart is, there is your treasure. For your, where your treasure is, there is is your heart. If we permitted our thoughts about our our wealth and resources, our trust in these things, to dull our working out our salvation with fear and trembling, instead of making the request of the Lord and the Lord's prayer, 
we've grown careless and insensitive and we've settled in and we don't ask the Lord daily. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We put too much stock in our resources and in good in the good things of this world. We've made our, 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 our obtaining of the good things in this world our primary focus for the rest of our lives when God has commanded us to make him our focus. Excessive wealth dulls our sense of spiritual urgency and expectations of divine examination and future judgment. Peter cries out and says, What manner of persons ought you to be in light of the destruction of the world? With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but to all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Dear friends, let us hear Paul's word to Timothy as we close. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Let's close and let's pray.